So I ask that you turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. There are 28 chapters in Acts. We started this journey a long time ago, and we are at the end. It's kind of bittersweet. We know we're moving on to other things, but uh, it has been quite the journey. So Acts chapter 28. As we consider the end of the book of Acts, a few weeks ago, Mariah and I finished watching a TV series that we've been watching for quite a while. We don't watch a lot of TV, so it takes us a, lot, a long time to get through a series. But as the series finale came, there was this wrap-up episode in the final episode. And they took pretty much every character in the show, and they kind of tied a tiny little bow around their life and showed how everything worked out. And they went from character to character and just showed, you know, everything came together. Everything worked out perfectly. And as soon as it was over, Mariah and I looked at each other, and we thought, Man, that was weird. That was like almost too tidy. It was almost too good to be true. It was a great show, but the last episode kind of let us down in that too good to be true sort of moment. Now, many of you are probably familiar, too, with the opposite type of uh, ending that leaves things unresolved. It leaves you with tension. Uh, many would be familiar with the term a cliffhanger. What a way to describe the end of something, a cliffhanger, like you're literally hanging on the edge of a cliff. Now, the book of Acts is kind of a strange book in the way that it ends. It it does definitely not have a tidy ending. Uh, You know, you kind of, as you're reading through, all of a sudden, it's just over. But it's not the kind of ending that you would even feel comfortable being able to say the end at the end of it. It ends, but in this unresolved kind of dot, dot, dot sort of way. And so rather than writing the end, you might be able to write to be continued. I would argue, too, though, that that maybe doesn't even describe it well because it's not this kind of ethereal to be continued. The feeling I get at the end of the book of Acts is a now what. It feels like a call to action, not an unsatisfied now what, but a now what. What are we going to do about this? Now, Luke, the author of Acts, describes part one of the story, the gospel of Luke, uh, as the story of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication is then what we considered a year and a half ago in our first ever gathered worship as we started in Acts chapter one, was that the book of Acts was the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach, uh, ruling from heaven through his people and through his church. And so Luke doesn't end his second volume with a period. He doesn't end it by saying that the work that Jesus continued to do and teach through his church was complete. I would argue actually quite the opposite, that there's a a serious implication that the work is to continue. And so this morning, I want to consider the end of the book of Acts, the end of the book of Acts. And when I say the end, I almost want you to think of it as a beginning. I want us to examine where we are at this morning. So as we consider this kind of now what moment at the end of the book of Acts, no matter who you are and you're hearing my voice right now, we need to consider what are we going to do about this? You may not even be a Christian. You may wonder what the Bible is all about, who this Jesus guy is, what that means to you. But I hope you would consider this morning the good news of Jesus Christ and that you would open up your heart to rest in the hope that can be found there. If you are a Christian, I hope you're encouraged this morning as we consider the end of the book of Acts, but we see the unstoppable gospel, and we see the example that Paul gives. 
The central message to the book of Acts is really nothing will stand in the way of the gospel's advance. And so a claim like that demands a response. And so to everybody listening this morning, it's a little bit of a facetious big idea, but our big idea is this. The gospel is unstoppable. What are you going to do about it? The gospel is unstoppable. What are you going to do about it? feels like the kind of playground interaction. You know, someone makes a claim, says, so what are you going to do about it? That's kind of what I'm thinking. We have a big claim. The gospel is unstoppable, so what are you going to do about it? And so in Acts chapter 28, we pick up where we left off. We pick up where we left off. Paul has appealed to have a trial before Caesar. He's entitled to it as a Roman citizen. Now, in this process of appealing to this, he's locked in prison for two years. He's gone before governors and kings. He's been shipwrecked, and he's been bitten by a poisonous snake. If that all sounds crazy to you, read the last couple chapters in Acts or tune back into our uh, last couple services. But Paul has finally made it to Rome. And in Rome, we find Paul in this sort of house arrest. That's where we left off last week. Paul's in this house arrest. He's granted uh, some freedoms, but he is far from free. And so he takes a few days to recover from his a harrowing voyage, really, and uh, he reaches out to the local Jewish leaders. And so that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 28, verse 17. And so let's read the rest of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. After three days, he called together, he being Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to, me, sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense 
and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. And so Paul meets with the religious leaders. He recovers from his journey, and he says, i got to touch base with these guys. They might have heard some stuff. I want to clarify things. And so first, he appeals to his innocence. In verse 17 through 19, he, he appeals to his innocence. He kind of catches them up with the story. And then we see him set of his purpose for seeing them in verse 20. Right? Paul's initial statement to them, it's because of the hope of Israel that he is in chains. It's because of the hope of Israel that he's in chains. Now, what is the significance of this claim? Right? He calls these people together, right? these Jewish religious leaders, and he makes a claim. It's because of the hope of Israel that he's in this chain. Well, it's important to note who he's talking to in the time period in which he is talking to them. Paul is making clear uh, that Christianity, uh, the reason that he is in chains, is not a rogue sect. Right? They're going to call it that in a second, but uh, rather than being a rogue sect, it is the fulfillment of the hope that you know all of Israel had, that God would send a Messiah, or a Savior, to save and liberate God's chosen people, the Jews. And so if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you've seen uh, this story unravel and unroll. Right? You know that this uh, vision that God has for his people is much larger than just the Jews. We see in the very first chapter of Acts that God's plan for the gospel uh, to go out to the ends of the earth would be to the ends of the earth. Right? This is a message of hope that goes beyond Jerusalem. Right, the religious center for the Jews. It goes to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see, uh, and as we consider this gospel rollout, or literally the good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is when they talk about it going beyond city, province, uh, region, ethnicity, social status. This is the good news the message that, that God would make a way for humanity to be restored. Uh, the reason that humanity needed restoration and redemption was because of sin. Uh, since the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, people have failed to measure up. They've missed the mark. And so from Adam and Eve all the way to us today, we have all put ourselves before God. We have rebelled against God. And because of that rebellion, we have over us a debt that we can't afford to pay. And so no matter how good you are, no matter how much you try to earn your salvation, we simply can't measure up. We cannot bridge the gap between us, a broken, sinful people, and God who is perfectly holy. But God made a promise centuries earlier that he would redeem his people. And he would redeem his people. He sent his son, his only son, Jesus, into the world to live a life that we could never live. That life that maybe we can strive for, but we could never live. Perfectly sinless, yet die on our behalf. Die the death that we deserved for our sin and rebellion. God raised Jesus from the dead. and made a way for us to be made right with him. He credits Jesus' righteousness to us in exchange for our sin, and it's by grace alone that we can be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news 
This is the hope that, that Paul's talking about. This is the reason why he's in chains. So Paul plants the seed for the Jewish religious leaders in Rome, uh, yeah, saying that you know, the hope that they've been waiting for has come. And it's because of that hope that Paul's in chains. And so this intrigues them. So they set up a time to meet up with Paul. Paul can't come to them. He's under house arrest, so they'll, they'll come to Paul. We see in verse uh, 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So again, they've come to Paul, and Paul spends the whole day. Now, Paul spent a lot of time preaching before, but Paul spends the whole, time, the whole day showing them from the law and the prophets that this hope that they've been waiting for is found in Jesus. I love the language, too. He doesn't simply show them, but it says he was appealing to them. He was trying to convince them. Now, there is a lot we can draw out, even from just that short verse. But first, if you are a Christian, I want you to hear this. Do not neglect the Old Testament. Do not neglect the Old Testament. We don't have to unhitch, as some have said. Uh, we see Luke, the author of Acts. He ends his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and his second volume, the book of Acts, with a reminder that the whole Bible points to Jesus. We see in Luke 24, Jesus himself on the Emmaus Road shows his disciples that the Old Testament points to him as that Messiah, as the Savior. And Paul here spends the whole day pointing out through the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so use the Bible as you point to the hope that we have in Jesus. Read the whole counsel of God and grow in your understanding of who he is through his revealed will and his word. Consider what he has done, is doing, and will do through the promises of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon reminds us of the importance of seeing Christ in all the Bible. Uh, one time, Spurgeon, to a congregation of over 10,000, he paraphrased uh, a story or a recent exchange between a sage old pastor and a young uh, pastor in training. He says this, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? So from every text in Scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, now what is the road to Christ? I have never yet found a text that has not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. And so, Christian, it is him we proclaim in our evangelism. It is him that we seek through God's word. But we see in verse 24 that, as usual, the pattern we've seen in Acts, that the gospel is not universally accepted. Let's read verse 24 through 28. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus also cited this passage when he was speaking about how some of the Jews would reject this message. And the point that they are trying to make is this. They, you can have eyes to see and ears to hear, but their heart was unchanged by this message. Right? The organ, the heart, that was used uh, to describe their very being, their thinking, their willing, their deciding, had failed to respond. And so if you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm glad that you're tuning in. I'm really glad that you're searching this out. Whatever brought you here, whoever invited you, I'm glad that you're, you're listening. And you may be thinking, I'm indifferent to the subject. Now, I want to express this as humbly as I can, with humble charity. But to be indifferent to the subject is not possible. To be indifferent to the subject is not possible. The gospel requires a response. The gospel requires a response. An encounter with this news either will cause you to say, I will repent, I will believe in Jesus Christ, trusting him as Lord of my life, or I will reject this grace, and I'll choose to make myself the Lord of my life. Nobody can remain neutral to this message. Charles Spurgeon, again, says this, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. Don't be like the people that Paul is describing here, hearing a message of hope but rejecting it. Now, I'm not asking, nor does the Bible ask for, just blind faith, hitching yourself to some ideology. I ask you, investigate, dig, hear. Just as we considered that quote from Isaiah, open your eyes, open your ears, but let your heart respond. Open your heart to this message. You will spend your life worshiping something, letting something melt your heart. You may make that relationships, Comfort, security, money, pleasure, power, control. The list is endless and it is equally hopeless. These things can't hold that kind of weight. When you acquire these things, they never will satisfy your deepest need. They have no hope to solve the biggest problem, which is sin. These things will not die for you. And even if they could, or even if they would, they wouldn't have the power to save. Beyond that, you may strive for these things your whole life and never reach them. Or you may lose them. And then what? You can never lose Jesus. And So if you profess to be a Christian or not, if you are putting your fulfillment, hope, value, worth, or satisfaction in anything other than Christ, you're doomed to fail. And this failure to respond is something to note here. 
And it's a, report, it's, it's a really important reminder to all of us that simply knowing about Jesus right, and this good news is not the same thing as being saved. Merely mental assent to Jesus, uh, that Jesus was a, a real person or even God's son, isn't the same thing as placing saving faith in him. And this can be exposed in a million different ways. But consider, what is the thing in your life that is of supreme fulfillment to you? You may profess Jesus to be Lord of your life, but you might not be able to give up those idols in your life and truly trust in him as your only hope. We must guard ourselves from being guilty of this. We must guard ourselves of having eyes to see, ears to hear, and yet not trust in Jesus as our only hope for salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So open your heart to the gospel. It requires a response. The gospel requires a response. Our second point, the gospel is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. So not only do we see that the gospel requires a response, but we see that the gospel is unstoppable, both in this passage and really through the whole book of Acts. If you are a Christian, this can help you answer the question that we posed in our big idea. What are you going to do about it? When you're confronted with the gospel, what are you going to do about it? And I want to draw out a few things specifically from this passage, but again, through the whole book of Acts that we see repeated over and over that I pray will encourage you this morning. And so the first way we see that the gospel is unstoppable is this, through proclamation. The gospel is unstoppable through proclamation. Throughout the whole book of Acts, we see that actually a quarter of the verses, a quarter of the verses in the whole book are part of a sermon or a speech. And so I want to challenge you, uh, as we consider these next few points about how the gospel is unstoppable, I want to challenge you with a task, with an assignment, okay? If you're tuning out your ears at that moment, Stick with me. I, I, I'm confident that this will be beneficial. But read through the book of Acts. I don't know, however long it takes you. You could do it this afternoon. You could do it over the next week. You could do it over the next month. But read through the book of Acts and make a little note of every time you see preaching or proclamation in Acts. Proclamation of the gospel was central to the gospel spread. When Jesus commissions his followers... In the first chapter of Acts, you know, what does he say? What does he ask them to do? What does he say is going to happen? We've come back to this verse many times. But he says in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness tells others what they've seen, what they've heard, what they know. And so we see that, obedient to that, his followers receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and immediately Peter launches into proclaiming the gospel. And on your little journey through the book of Acts, again, however long it takes you, look for all these times where the gospel is proclaimed. And so the book of Acts serves for us as a reminder that it is our mandate as followers of Jesus to make him known, to make disciples And you may say, I've done a spiritual gift inventory. Evangelism is not my spiritual gift. Well, if you're a Christian, you must share the gospel. 
Maybe you don't have the zeal or tenacity of the Apostle Paul. I'm with you. But remember that Paul isn't the perfect model of perfection. He had an incredibly dark past. An incredibly dark past. He wasn't a slick speaker. But it was his weaknesses that he knew glorified God. Paul knew that there was real power in proclamation when it came empowered by the Holy Spirit, when he was simply faithful to the task. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 through 5 says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's actually better. It's actually better uh, if it's clear that Faith does not come merely from lofty speech or merely man's wisdom. So Paul had a dark past. Uh, He wasn't necessarily the slickest speaker. And circumstantially, he faced serious challenges too. But whether it was facing assault, threat of death, perilous journeys, trials, prison, or house arrest, Paul knew that his job was to proclaim the gospel period. It was during these two years of house arrest that Paul wrote what are referred to as the prison epistles, or letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. I love this. I had never seen it before, or at least noticed it before in this way. I love that in Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about his imprisonment, his circumstances, Uh, And the fact that he took advantage of being constantly under watch by the prison guards. Philippians 1, 12 through 13. Uh, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's circumstances were not ideal, but he seizes the opportunity while he's being guarded to make it known that it's for Christ that he's imprisoned. He made it his mission that all the guards would know who Jesus is. And so I'm not saying this from a high horse, but I am saying this as a fellow pilgrim. We need to purge the excuses from our mind about not being able, not being good enough, not having a conducive environment but we need to share the gospel. How do we do that? Simply do it. The main thing we are called to do as a church is to preach the gospel. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to be healthy. We don't need to be popular. We don't even need to be free to preach the gospel. And that's the pattern that we see throughout Acts. As we have looked at, being inadequate is more of a testimony of God's power. In bad circumstances, again, flip to any page in Acts and see God's providence. Consider Acts chapter 8 as an example. Christians are scattered because of the persecution. 
Seems like a bad environment. But keep reading. We see that it's that scattering that causes more gospel spread. And so this is such an important reminder for us at all times, but it feels impossible to ignore in our current situation. Our lockdown stay-at-home order is not the same as Paul's house arrest. And Lord willing, things will be returning again to normal soon. But I know in my life how easy it is to slip into making excuses that, okay, well, once things open back up, then I'll be able to connect with that neighbor. Once uh, you know, I can have people into my backyard or once I can talk to this person without a mask. And just as Paul's work wasn't without trouble, how could we expect any different? And I suspect that during our lifetimes, we will face more trouble than we have ever known. But be reminded through Paul's life and throughout Paul's journey that uh, it wasn't without trouble, but we're reminded in the very last words of the book of Acts that it was without hindrance. The gospel is unstoppable. So don't fall into thinking that your inadequacies or your circumstances will hinder God's work. Let's be faithful with anticipation that God will work through our inadequacies and our circumstances. It is God who does the work, and that is why we must be reminded that it is not purely human responsibility, but we must turn not just through proclamation, but also through prayer, through prayer. And so this is another pattern that we see right through the book of Acts. The early church prayed. And so on your same little journey that I know you'll commit to, to go through the book of Acts and make a note of every time you see gospel proclamation, Make a little note of every time you see people praying. Right? To the early church, praying was breathing. Right? To get you started on your little journey of making those notes. You know, they faced a big decision in Acts chapter 1. What did they do? They prayed. Acts chapter 2, what was the regular rhythm of their lives? They prayed. Acts chapter 3, the same. They faced persecution. What do they do? Pray. Acts chapter 4. They need to select leaders. They pray, Acts chapter 6. Have somebody literally in the act of murdering you. Pray for them, Acts chapter 7. So I could go on, but as Martin Luther reminds us, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and the business of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. So it is the business of Christians to pray. And so what does this mean? How do we apply this? At risk of stating the obvious, pray. As Luther says, it is the business of Christians to pray. And so personal prayer, for sure. But I think it's important to note, too, on our trip through the book of Acts, almost every instance of prayer that we see is almost always corporate. And so be a praying Christian, but Heritage Grace Church, let's be a praying church. Let's remember to keep prayer an important part of our gathered worship when we come together. Let's make prayer an important part of our interactions with one another. Rather than, and I'm guilty of this far too often, but rather than just throwing out, I'll pray for you, let's actually pray for someone in that moment. And let's take advantage of nights like tonight where we can come together, have the privilege of praying to the creator and sustainer of the universe, where we can humbly come before him, acknowledging that we can do nothing apart from him. We can adore him. We can confess our sins to him. We can thank him, and we can ask him to work. Edwin Orr reminds us 
this history is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Again, Paul writing in this season. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul writes to his friends to remind them to be devoted to prayer and to also pray for him. Not that Paul would be released from prison, but that he would have opportunities to share the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, who I quoted a few times earlier, uh, one time was asked, I mean, even said in that one example, he was preaching to a congregation of 10,000 people. And someone asked him, what, what do you attribute the, the success of your preaching? What makes you such a good preacher? He said, my people pray for me. And so how could Paul say something like this to in one of his letters to say, pray for me that the door would open uh, to share the gospel with people? Because he was devoted to proclamation. He was devoted to prayer. And finally, in our third point, he trusted in the providence of God. The gospel is unstoppable through the providence of God. Now, especially in the last number of weeks, we've seen this come out time and time again. God is sovereign or in absolute control. And in his power, he works things together for our good and for his glory. And so I would encourage you on that same trip through the book of Acts, look for the third P here, proclamation, prayer, and God's providence. Make a note of every time you see or suspect that God uh, God's providential rule and reign is happening. Again, uh, God's providence, we considered last week, is God's sovereignty in action. And so again, a clear example would be that time where you know the believers are scattered because of persecution, and in that scattering, the gospel is scattered to the nations. Start training your eye to see God at work through the Bible and through your own life. This is how you train the muscle in your own life, to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. God makes promises, and God keeps promises. So trust and rest in the providence of God. And so our big idea contained a question this morning. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And so as we consider the good news of Jesus Christ and the advance of the gospel message throughout the early church and beyond, we are all confronted with that question. What are you going to do about it? If you aren't a Christian, what are you going to do? You can't remain indifferent to this message. There is no fence sitting. You must choose. There are two ways to live. Remember, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And so will you accept Jesus as your only hope? Or will you reject his message? Like those who heard the message from Paul, will you be convinced or will you disbelieve? And I applaud you for being here and listening. I ask that you continue. Consider this good news. Investigate these claims. 
You can spend the rest of your life looking for meaning within, trying to live up to a standard of goodness that none of us is capable of doing. Or you can submit your life to Christ, who is our only hope. And you can be saved by grace alone. And you may be listening in, and you may have spent your whole life, maybe even in the church, knowing these truths with your ears, seeing these things with your eyes. But as you come to face, uh, as you come face to face with this message, you know that although you've heard, you've never understood. Although you've seen, you've never perceived. And so, friend, open your heart to turn to God. It is not too late. And I fear that too many of us live under this guise of hearing and seeing, but never truly turning to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so, Christian brother, sister, I ask you the same question as we consider the book of Acts and the unstoppable gospel. What are you going to do about it? The book of Acts is the story of Jesus building his church by his grace and gives us confidence that he will continue to build it until he returns. And so will you faithfully take up the torch? Will you proclaim the gospel? Will you share this hope that you have with strangers, neighbors, family, and friends? Jesus has called you to do so. So let's be obedient. He has promised to be with us always as we proclaim the gospel to all people. Romans 10, 13 through 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so consider the book of Acts and how the gospel relentlessly moved forward. It was God doing the saving work, but it was through the means of faithful gospel proclamation. And so I say this to myself as much as each of you, brothers and sisters, but let's stop making excuses. Let's stop letting our fear of man trump our fear of God. Let's stop putting the idols of our own comfort, security, and reputation ahead of our duty to share the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Don't read about Paul's life and then look in the mirror and think, I could never be so bold. Consider Paul as the story of a man with a dark past who happily boasted in his weakness and yet proclaimed the gospel without hindrance, empowered by the Holy Spirit, even while being under house arrest for two years. And if we desire that people would hear the gospel, will you commit to pray? Pray for boldness. Pray that even if circumstantially everything seems to be working against you, that the gospel would advance without hindrance. Let's pray that God would revive dead hearts. A.W. Tozer says this, to desire revival and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. We need to be humble enough to admit that we have a responsibility to share the gospel, but it is God who is truly in control. Only God can save souls. But that is a good thing. Let's pray as our most tangible expression of trusting God. Jerry Bridges writes this, Prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that he is able to answer our prayers. Our prayers would become nothing more than wishes. 
But while God's sovereignty, along with his wisdom and love, is the foundation of our trust in him, prayer is the expression of that trust. And so rest in the providence of God. You can't read the book of Acts and not see God at work through the seemingly good, through the seemingly bad, and the seemingly ugly. And I really mean it. Read through the book of Acts. Figure out whatever schedule you need to do to make this happen, but read through however long it takes and mark down the instances of proclamation, of prayer, and of God's providence. I know you will be encouraged by the exercise. And once you've done so, or maybe even before, find somebody else that you'll commit to, to doing this with. You'll say, will you go through this with me? And you do it, and then when you're finished, come together and share what you've learned about the human responsibility of gospel proclamation, the need for prayer, and the absolute hope we can have in God's providence. And so we've come to the end of the book of Acts. Based on Paul's letters and other sources, it appears that Paul was released from prison, uh, released from this house, house arrest after two years, and that he continued preaching until eventually he was arrested again. And according to, to, to tradition, he was eventually beheaded in Rome by the order of Emperor Nero. And Paul's very last letter was to his protege, Timothy. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4, both verses 6 to 7 and 16 through 18. Paul writes this to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christian, may we be willing to pour ourselves out for the sake of our king. May we fight the good fight. May we run the race and keep the faith, knowing that the Lord will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the unstoppable gospel. We thank you that your plans and your ways are far beyond all that we can comprehend, ask, or imagine. God, we ask for your help as we all are confronted with the question, what are we going to do about it? When we confront the story of the early church, when we confront, uh, are confronted with the unstoppable gospel, we all must respond. So God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would soften their heart to hear this message, to investigate these claims, and that they would turn to trust you as Lord of their life. And God, for those who do know you, I pray that we would all consider what we have learned as we 
read through the book of Acts, the, the book that tells the story of the early church, that we would all be willing to take up the torch of faithful gospel proclamation, that we would faithfully pray and that we would rest in your providential work. Thank you for the confidence that we can have because of the promises that you've made, the promises you've kept, and that the book of Acts doesn't end with a tidy little conclusion, but that your church is still moving forward and we get to be a part of that mission. God, I pray that we would be faithful as a church in gospel proclamation, in prayer, and in resting in your providence. God, we pray that your will would be done in our lives and in this church, that as we plant this church, we would be building nothing for our own glory, knowing that it's you who builds the church. God, we pray that you would be glorified in our efforts, our humble efforts to glorify you as we show and share the love of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your son and that it is the only firm foundation. We ask all these things in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.